Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. While studying history back in the 1990s, Neil Howe and the late William Strauss noticed something. There seemed to be a pattern to history that repeated itself again and again. Howe and Strauss developed a theory that history moves in 80 to 100-year cycles divided into four 20 to 25-year turnings, the high, awakening, unraveling, and crisis. Neil Howe argues that we are currently living through a fourth turning, and today on the show, we unpack what that means. Neil is a historian, demographer, and economist, and his latest book is The Fourth Turning is Here. The crisis of the fourth turning isn't a historical event. It's a generation-long era that sometimes seems to be getting better, sometimes seems to be getting worse, and moves through several phases before reaching a climax and resolution. Neil explains what these phases look like, which ones we've already been through, and which are still to come, and when he thinks our fourth turning will end and the cycle of history will start over. In the second part of our conversation, Neil talks about what cultural changes he thinks we'll experience as the fourth turning progresses, including how he thinks gender roles will shift. We also discuss what happens if the crisis ends in disaster and the most important thing to do to successfully navigate a fourth turning. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash fourth turning. All right, Neil Howell, welcome back to the show. Great to be here, uh, Brett. So back in the 90s, you and William Strauss developed this generational cyclical theory of history. And you got a new book out that is sort of a summary and synthesis of all your previous work. It's called The Fourth Turning is Here. And we had you on the show back in 2016 to talk about that work. We also wrote an article back in 2012 that I think offers a really accessible overview of your theory. But for those listeners who aren't familiar with your cyclical theory of history, I'll try to kick things off with a thumbnail sketch of it. So basically, you say that history repeats itself in a certain pattern. There's this 80 to 100-year cycle that repeats itself. You call it a saculum. And that saculum is divided into four periods or turnings, which can be compared to the seasons of the year. And each turning is 20 to 25 years long. And I think it's really easiest to help people understand this to look at the last turning in a cycle, right? First, the fourth turning, which is sort of like the historical winter. The fourth turning is a crisis period. A country faces some big threat. It's often a war. Our last fourth turning started with the Great Depression and ended with World War II. 
And then the cycle starts over again with the first turning, which is a high period like spring. In the first turning, institutions are strong and individualism is weak. It's kind of conformist, but people are able to work together and get big things done. And our last first turning was after World War II during the late 40s and into the early 60s. The second turning is a time of spiritual awakening. This is the summer season in history. People start getting tired of the conformity of the first turning, and there's more emphasis on individualism and the inner life. And this was in the mid-1960s to the mid-80s. And then there's the third turning, which is like fall. This is a period of unraveling when the individualism of the second turning kind of catches up with society and trust in institutions bottoms out and societal systems become dysfunctional. People are divided and they can't get things done. Things just feel really worn out. And this was from the mid-80s to the mid-00s. And then the crisis happens again, and we're back to the fourth turning. So that's it. And then there's also four generational archetypes that are part of this 80-year cycle that are really interesting, and they repeat themselves too. But we're going to concentrate on the turnings today, particularly the turn you say we are in now, which is the fourth turning. So let's talk about this current fourth turning, because a lot of people look around at the news, they're looking at their their social media feeds, and it just seems like everything is falling apart, and nothing works, and that we're on the the verge of just some something, feels like something bad's going to happen. Um, so let's dig into to this fourth turning, what you talk about in the book, and this current crisis that we're in. One of the things about fourth turnings is that they have their own chronology as well. There's these phases that we go through that you've noticed throughout history. So what are the different phases of a fourth turning? And maybe it might be helpful to use the previous fourth turning, right? The World War II Great Depression crisis as a way to walk people through these phases. Yeah, I point out a number of these phases and these always occur in a certain order, although they can occur at any time during the crisis era. And remember the crisis is not an event. It's an era, right? It's a whole generation long period of time. And so there can be many crises, I guess, uh, so to speak, many, many great dire events within a fourth turning era. So typically, the first thing you notice is, is that sometime during the unraveling, there's what we usually call a precursor event, not always, but usually and this is an event which sort of foreshadows the fourth turning to come. It's sort of an indicator of, uh, you know, a sudden mood of public mobilization and urgency about some great danger, right? And the country rallies briefly, but only briefly, and then it kind of goes back into its third turning mood of sort of, you know, lassitude, individualism, sort of ennui, and kind of waiting. And for the Great Depression, World War II, this was World War I, which kind of appeared out of nowhere, right? And typically these periods do, these events, these precursors, you know, you kind of have in the middle of an unraveling era, which was certainly that era, the very early 20th century was a period of, um, you know, a lot of individualism, a lot of aimlessness. And suddenly had World War I kind of come out of nowhere. You know, everyone just thought, well, we had attained this permanent period of peace, kind of came out of nowhere. And I think the similar parallel recently was 9-11, you know, which kind of, again, came out of nowhere. I think shocked everyone. Remember the big book that was so influential over that 1990s decade, which was Francis Fukuyama's book, The End of History. Government was sort of fading away. Markets were taking over. Globalization was everywhere. You know, where did this come from? Right. So, and th these happen periodically. We go talk about earlier ones in history. And then 
eventually the generations kind of mature, you get into the correct alignment and we sort of have a, uh, a catalyst where we actually enter the fourth turning. And for the Great Depression, World War II, that was Black Thursday, 1929. That was a great crash. And uh, more recently, that was August to September 2007, and then even more, the fall of 2008, where we really entered, in fact, the stock market was plunging at the time of the, I don't know if you recall this, but the time of the uh, Obama-McCain debates, you know, during that presidential election, if you recall, the major banking houses were beginning to go under and so forth. And suddenly we had to declare a national emergency and run these enormous deficits and, you know, guarantee bailout, you know, hundreds of hundreds of businesses. So that was that event. That was the catalyst event. And every fourth turning has a catalyst for, you know, the American Revolution. It was the Tea Party, Boston Tea Party. And in the American Civil War, it was the election of Lincoln. And, you know, going further back, the whole period of the Glorious Revolution and the the wars in Virginia and New England, it was probably the massive violence that started uh, Bacon's Rebellion and King Philip's War. This was in uh, 1675 and really initiated that quarter century of, of rebellion and revolution uh, during the American colonial period. And, and again, you can go back. Now, typically, as you move forward, it sort of awakens everyone, right, that they were in a new mood. And typically, as you go forward, you encounter these periods that we call regeneracies. When the public mood begins to regenerate after a long period of sort of, well, this this is worse than anything, right? I mean, we're now in this crisis. Uh, we, we don't know what to do. We're completely unprepared for this. And then finally, you begin to regenerate a sense of new public direction, a new sense of uh, public mobilization. And we begin to rally around certain kinds of communities, you know, around some new agenda. And everyone becomes more interested in the public, in the nation, and where things are going. And certainly in the Great Depression that happened with, with the election of FDR, you know, some years into the Great Depression, we finally had FDR and the New Deal, first New Deal, second New Deal, who was reelected in a landslide in 1936. And I think you'd have to say that in our current fourth turning, the regeneracy was really the election of 2016 with Trump versus Hillary Clinton. And what that did was it suddenly changed America's involvement in politics. One of the greatest things we worried about, you know, throughout the 80s and 90s and going into the to the OOs and so on was the fact that no, Americans didn't care about politics anymore. Well, in, in the election of uh, 2016, suddenly American participation in voting hugely shot up. And again, in 2018 and 2020, we've seen the highest voter participation rates in a century in these elections. And suddenly America becomes completely galvanized around these big political tribes we see today, right? Red zone and blue zone. And in recent years, we see worries about civil war. We see worries about civil crack up. And I think this is scary to people. You know, we may feel pretty good about our own lives in, in a sense and how things are working in our families and so on. But we wonder if there's just some tremendous vacuum, complete lack of leadership at the national level, sometimes whether we're leaderless or sometimes whether we're breaking up into two separate national communities. And this is a very common feeling. I think that 
a lot of people felt that way during the 1930s. Certainly, people literally felt that way during the Civil War. And people felt that way during the 1770s and 80s. So, And we go on from there. Basically, what that leads to is a period of creative destruction of the public sector, often in the midst of organized conflict. And that takes us into the last phases of the fourth turning, which is the consolidation and possibly further regeneracies, but ultimately into a consolidation, a climax, and a resolution. And very often, that could be a large... When I talk about organized conflict, of course, we're often talking about war and typically in fourth turnings. These have been, you know, negotiated and carried out during periods of total war. Every fourth turning in Anglo-American history going back six, seven centuries has featured at least one episode of total war and every total war has occurred in a fourth turning. Okay, so a lot to recap there, a lot to unpack there. Okay, so the four phases, It's there's a precursor that happens in the third turning, the unraveling. It's an emergency that temporarily galvanizes a society. So if you look at the Depression era crisis, that was World War I. And then today you're saying the 9-11 attack was one that temporarily galvanized us. I think everyone remembers after what happened 9-11 and we got, everyone was all for, you know, going back and trying to get back at at the Taliban, right? I think people remember that period if you were alive yeah, then. Yeah, and, and for a brief period of time, everyone felt patriotic. Right, you know, there's yeah. this tremendous galvanism. World War One was was very much the same. And by the way, the memory of both instantly became very bad afterwards. Yeah. I think it was Robert Kagan who once said that, you know, we all recall after, uh, after the Afghanistan and Iraq war, the whole mantra, you know, Bush lied, people died, right? But but I think it was it was Kagan who said that after World War One the mantra was Wilson lied people died, <laughs> you know. Right. I mean, it was sort of the same thing. Uh, suddenly we wanted to turn our back, and in response to both of them, we became a more isolationist nation and wanted to turn ourselves away from these global obligations that seem to have gone awry. Okay. Then after the precursor, there's a catalyst which kickstarts the actual crisis period or fourth turning for the depression, World War II era. That was Black Thursday, the stock market crash. Uh, and for us, that was the, you're saying about 2008 is when the the fourth turning started for us. Yeah, the, fall of two, the fall of 2008 yeah. was when it really went crazy. Right. With the, uh, the great financial crash that we had yeah. then. But then after the catalyst, people are feeling everything's kind of run amok. So people start trying to reunify community and regenerize civic life with a regeneracy. And th- this regeneracy, like you, you hear regeneracy, and you th- that sounds positive. It sounds like regeneracy can be, it's going to be a lot of conflicts. You're, what's happening is like the, our culture is trying to figure out how we're going to solve this crisis era that we're in. So in the depression, as you said, the regeneracy there was FDR being elected and him implementing all the the New Deal legislation. But I think people forget it, that was very controversial. There was a lot well, of debate it, it, in, it our, in our country and it, that period. And in yeah. fact, it was the equivalent of red zone, blue zone today. Remember that the popular front and the New Deal supporters, you know, thought about uh, the 1930s as, as the fascist decade, you know, so they were already fighting the good fight against the rise of fascism around the world, you know, whether it was a Spanish Civil War or, or you know, the Japanese invading uh, China and the rise of Hitler and so on. But to conservatives, it was the red decade, right? So you had these two completely different interpretations and many Americans not even wanting to talk to each other during that period 
a very divisive period in our history. And it, it's kind of astounding when you think about that, that given this schism in the way people in sort of the high-income world, the West, was interpreting the events of the 30s, that ultimately the nation was able to galvanize around a single objective, which was to defeat fascism. And this is a point I make throughout the book, that the conflict that characterizes the climax could be mainly internal, or it could be mainly external, right? It could be, you know, the nation against external enemies. And it can be anywhere along the spectrum of that. But the nature of that cannot be determined in advance. You would have no way of knowing in the mid-30s or even the late 30s that America wouldn't go to civil war before it would ever galvanize together to defend the world against authoritarian aggressors. And I think that that's a repeated theme that I come back to. Some things are predictable, some things aren't. What is predictable is the searching for a new definition of community. What's unpredictable is what form that's going to take. Gotcha. Okay, so you say our current regeneracy was the 2016, 2018, 2020 elections where people in America are suddenly interested in public life again after- Yeah, sort of, that, that was the first regeneracy. Okay, there could be another really one. really started in 2016. The Republican Party went populist. The Democratic Party in, in many ways went the other way and Trump was elected and the Democrats- you know, kind of an extraordinary move declared that they were in resistance. You remember? <laughs> There's a resistance kind of, again, taking from the 1930s, right? They were going to be the resistance party, like an enemy army was occupying Washington. So, you know, Trump and all the Republicans were suddenly these occupying invaders. And then, of course, you had, you know, multiple impeachment attempts and <laughs> trials and just unprecedented things in American history. And then finally, Trump losing the election and trying, a, you know, a putsch to retake the Capitol Hill. Extraordinary events in the midst of a, uh, a global pandemic, which, of course, this nation managed very badly. And I, I say this as a demographer. I mean, <laughs> I know the figures. We did not manage it very well, right, in terms of deaths. And so this combination of galvanizing people to think that politics is extremely important together with this continued demoralization of the fact that nothing works, right? And the nation remains leaderless. Now, there could be another regeneracy. And in fact, many of our fourth turnings have more than one regeneracy. The first regeneracy in the 1930s was obviously the enthusiasm around FDR and obviously the kind of, you know, galvanizing of of the Republicans to oppose him. But then what happened in the late 1930s was the enthusiasm around FDR sort of declined, particularly after 1936. We went into another big recession, you know, the recession of, of 37, 38, horrible recession. And it made most people convinced that by 1939, 1940, we were still in the Great Depression. The New Deal hadn't really worked. And what happened at that time was the constituency shifted Mainly, the New Deal shifted away from some of its reforms, which would have imposed themselves on the South. And the South, in turn, came on board, not on FDR's domestic agenda, but came on board FDR's foreign policy agenda, which tended to be in favor of an active foreign policy abroad to prevent the rise of fascism. And it was really around that refashioned constituency defining the two sides that we finally went to war 
and were ready to go to war really about a year before Pearl Harbor. Uh, the nation began arming again at, at a frantic rate, really in the spring or, or even at the very beginning of 1941. We were already um, uh, you know, running huge deficits and on the way, you know, galvanizing the economy to sort of rearm, and we had already reintroduced the draft and so on. Uh, and then, of course, came Pearl Harbor, and that just simply galvanized. That That's when we went into what I call the consolidation, the time when we are aware that the fate of the country is at stake and, and you know, extraordinary public mobilization is required. And every fourth turning enters that phase. Okay, so in a fourth turning, you first have a catalyst. And in this fourth turning, you're saying that was the 2008 financial crisis. Then you have a regeneracy, and this is where the, the public gets energized to try to figure out how to solve the country's problems. And that was the huge surge in political interest that we've experienced since the 2016 election. Then there's a consolidation, and that's when people sense there, that there's a real threat facing it, uh, and there needs to be a public mobilization towards solidarity to overcome it. And then that leads into the climax. And you know, I, I think a lot of people thought the consolidation was going to happen during the pandemic, right? At first, it seemed people like were going to come together, but then it became very politicized, and then it just divided people even more. And you say that's not surprising because you never know how these things are going to play out and when the time is ripe you know, for one phase of the fourth turning to segue to the next. So, you know, we're due an event that brings the consolidation. And I think if people think about things that could possibly consolidate this crisis, there's, you know, stuff going on in Ukraine. There's things going on in the Pacific with China. So wars have typically been parts of the fourth turning. Any other things that could be like the consolidation of this crisis besides, you know, these great power wars that we've had in previous turnings? Well, again, it's external and internal. So the other one is the internal threat, right? What if there were kind of a catastrophic impeachment or the absolute refusal of the two parties to cooperate any longer in Congress? Or what if certain states simply decided to refuse to go along with something that, um, that was legislated at the national level? Well, what would be the reaction? And it's interesting. I do a lot of work for the military. I, I've advised them on you know, recruiting millennials and advise, you know, looking at millennials, both for the Army and the Navy and, and the Marine Corps. And I've had officers, you know, high, very high level people ask me, you know, when things have been breaking out in, in, in some of the West Coast states, you know, what do we do uh, if California suddenly decides to not follow federal authority? We've got huge bases, you know, in Coronado and various other places. And as I hear those complaints more than once, I, you know, it takes me right back to Fort Sumter. But these issues recur. And initially, you don't know how it's going to end. So it could be great war with another power. It could be a civil breakup or, you know, civil crisis. You also, it could be another, just another financial crash, like something just even bigger happens than the, the Great Recession. Yes. And, you know, I, that's kind of what I do in my day job. So I, we talk a lot about that and looking forward right now, we're, we're trying to do this great disinflation, 
you know, without going through another recession. And I think, you know, Americans have been relieved to the extent that which, you know, we've been able to get this far, but the economy is still checking ahead. But then again, you know, as an economist, when I look at all the long-term indicators of, you know, going into another recession, they're all flashing red. You know what I mean? Everything from, you know, the money supply to the yield curve to uh, national income sort of e- exceeding our full employment equilibrium. And, and all of these long-term indicators are indicating we're going back into recession land again. And each one of these ratchets up the tension, Right. I mean, I think about a generation of children, you know, born since the early OOs, who just can't even remember a time when America was not either in a recession, going into recession, or worried about going back into a recession, right? So this is a time of sort of hunkered down, constricted horizons of 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 hope, you know, in terms of in terms of living standards particularly catastrophic for younger generations today. And I will say that younger generations are the most negative about democracy, which they see not just in America, but around the world. Younger generations see democracy as a way of ensuring stasis, talking about everything, but always inventing some procedure for making sure that change never happens. Okay, so there's the consolidation. And after the consolidation is the climax. What was the climax in World War II depression crisis? Uh, the climax was really the simultaneous invasion of uh, Europe and D-Day in June of 1944 and the invasion of the Mariana Island chain and the, and the Battle of the Japanese Sea in, in, in the, at the same time in June of 1944. It was amazing. We were actually organizing simultaneous invasions in two different oceans, and both of them ended up as victories. About six weeks later, we were breaking out in northern France and we had completely defeated the Battle of the Japanese Sea. We we have absolutely decisive defeat over the Japanese Navy. And that was really the climax. That's when we knew that the end of the war was a matter of time. And that's the climax. The yeah. climax is when you can start really see the end. And you've said the, the climax for this fourth turning is on schedule for around 2030. Is that right? Yeah, something like that. It's yeah. going to occur sometime probably at the, around the edge of end of the decade. And again, this is an estimate. I mean, uh, my God, th- this is not, I'm predicting tides here. We're not predicting right. when individual waves are going to break, right? right? So, you know, we're kind of doing bands of dates. Uh, sure. But I do think if there was any single moment, which was most likely, it would be sometime right around the very end of the decade. And after the climax comes the resolution. And this is where you have, you know, you separate the winners from the losers. Treaties are drawn up. National boundaries are redrawn. uh, Political parties are redefined. And the saculum comes to an end. And you think our fourth turning that we're in right now will end in the early to mid 2030s. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Well, let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money in things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try fast growing trees right now, they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants and listeners to our show, get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code manliness at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code manliness at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com code manliness offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right. You got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss, a lot of useful information in there, talked about the value of known in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM, masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions.
And now back to the show. So you also talk about with these fourth turnings, like the mood and how society starts organizing itself starts changing. Are you seeing that right now in the current crisis? Well, I think we see the great desire to move back toward community, just a greater sense of community, which is a desire which is embodied really in, I'd say, even less the political agenda, but more even just the lifestyle of, of the millennial generation, being that if you, if you ask people, what should government do? Should government reinforce the principle of individualism or should reinforce the principle of community in American life today? People under 40 today overwhelmingly say community. And people over 40 tend to say, well, individualism, right? That we've never seen that degree of sort of inversion and, and difference. And again, to come back to sort of archetypal difference, that's sort of the opposite of what you would have seen back in the 1970s, or probably would have been inverted, had we asked that question, would have been inverted the opposite direction. And so that movement toward community, which by the end of the fourth turning, will be a sort of culminating event, is accompanied by other changes. One is a movement toward greater equality. That happens in every fourth turning and subsequent first turning. Income and wealth become more equal. Another is toward the movement from defiance toward authority, institutions which govern life with greater authority than before the crisis. I think another we talk about is the movement toward deferring long-term decisions toward instituting powerful long-term institutions, which actually invest in the future rather than, you know, borrow from the future. So a movement toward deferring long-term decisions to making long-term decisions and actually moving resources from the present toward the future. And one of the great ironies about fourth turnings in American history is that even at the time when the country feels endangered and in urgent peril of its existence is exactly the time when we construct these amazing long-term institutions. I mean, it was when the country felt like it was baking to pieces in the 1780s that we wrote this very powerful American constitution, right, which we've sort of venerated ever since as this, um, you know, building blocks of sort of the American form of government. It was during the Civil War when we instituted, you know, uh, for the first time, a national income tax, a national monetary system. We legislated the Intercontinental Railway, you know, state colleges and a state educational system, uh, nationalized weights and measures. I mean, we just did all this stuff, right, at a time when even Washington was under fear of attack. And think of all the things we did during the New Deal, long-term decisions. The Social Security Act of 1935, which most of the legislation's planning was done in 1934, which is the cornerstone of the modern social welfare system in America today, not just pension programs, but also, you know, all of the state federal programs like, um, you know, at TANF and, and SSI and, and all those programs that that are sort of the bedrock of sort of social insurance in America today, unemployment insurance and all the rest. We legislated them, Brad, at a time when, when GDP was in free fall. I mean, unemployment was near 20%. We had no idea how long this country was going to stay around. Countries in Europe were falling to fascism. I mean, this was the darkest period you can imagine. 
no one knew what was going to happen for the next couple of years back then, right? When FDR took over in the, the spring of 33, the banks had closed in about half the states. Even the markets had closed down for about two weeks before his inauguration. This was a nation in total panic, and much of the world was in panic. And yet, that was the time when we were planning these long-term changes. We were doing these massive new regulatory edifice, which remained in place for the next seven or eight decades. And I guess my point is, this is kind of paradoxical, isn't it? You'd think that we would design these long-term institutions on sunny days when we all feel great. We can, you know, have plenty of time to think about it. That's not how history works. And it's fascinating to me that usually when times are great, we don't do anything for the future. When times are down, at times of crisis, is when we think about the future. And finally, I talk about a transformation of our culture from a culture of irony to a culture of convention. And I think there's, there is a sense of exhaustion in the culture today. And I do think there's a sense of people looking for something new. But it's out of the, again, out of the stress and urgency of crisis that culture moves back to a certain kind of simplicity, almost necessarily toward that, and and simply clarifies basic fundamentals. People become uh, more earnest. That's happened, that's happened in every crisis. Yeah. You also talk about how just our culture will change because of how the generations are lining up in this crisis cycle. And one thing you've noted throughout all your books is that in a crisis period, gender roles become more distinct and separate, particularly in a fourth turning. But I, I was curious, like you're, today you're seeing a lot of this you know, gender fluidity in our culture today. What do you think is going on there? How do you square the gender fluidity that we're seeing with this idea that you've seen in other fourth turnings where gender roles become more distinct and separate? I think we're seeing gender fluidity, but we're also seeing a certain kind of gender role exhaustion, right? In that, you know, when gender can mean anything, then people began to insist that, well, it must mean something, right? I don't see a lot of, a tremendous amount of passion about the limitations of gender roles as there was, you know, 40 years ago. And in fact, I see a lot of young people just wondering how they could make their lives work more simply again through roles that just make everyone's life easier, right? I see a lot of that, not really having to do with my wanting to express myself more fully because I want sort of a different kind of gender role that's suited for me personally, but rather how can we make basic roles work so that we can all just get stuff done again, right? And just live live more peacefully. There's, I think there's a tremendous sense of uh, exhaustion, when it comes to having to think about gender roles all the time. So I think the last time we had you on, we talked about the male-female dynamic. Your hunch was that you were noticing with women, millennial women in particular, was that they were looking for more of a traditional kind of guy, I think as you were saying. They were looking for a guy who was stepped to the plate, who was you know wanted to do well with his life. And you thought that was sort of an indicator that we're transitioning to this more you know, fourth turning type gender relation. Does that, does that sound right? I, I think that's right. And I think that, um, you know, what women want usually is followed with a lag by what men become. I really do believe that. And, and 
it's interesting if you look at the national values survey where they actually ask questions about you know what what do you think is wrong with people and one of the questions they used to ask is you know i wish men were more likely to be less workaholic and talk more about their feelings you know sort of loosen up and sort of mellow out right you found a very positive response in questions taken when boomers were young adults and moving into midlife, you know, back in the 1970s and 80s and 90s, right? And it's really changed. Those questions are now getting much more negative responses, particularly by women who don't particularly want that, right? What they want is because you can imagine with the silent generation with boomers, you had all these, you know, workaholics and so on. And, and everyone said, why don't you lighten up? You don't need to work so hard, you know, just to just be a real person, right? But I think now with millennials, it's more, and you knew this, you know this from so many surveys, women want guys who will be there for them, who will provide them with security, who are in control of their lives, and who actually want to do something with their lives and in the community and actually be something. So they will provide them with some security. And that is one of the reasons why Marriage rates are down and fertility is down so much. And a lot of it is, is because it's true. Some of it is because married couples today, young married couples don't feel they can afford to do as much. But a lot of it is that women just don't find guys that they can depend upon. Single biggest complaint. And it's the bigger complaint as you go down the socioeconomic scale, right? And so for the first time now, this, this actually kind of switched over about 10 or 15 years ago. But for a long time, Back in the late 20th century, it was, um, you know, non-college Americans were getting married before uh, college-educated Americans and getting married more frequently. And, and now it's completely moved the other direction. It's people with degrees and with income now are getting married and other people aren't. And I think that is where women aren't finding men that they can count on. They, they would like a family. They would like to have kids. They would like to participate in, I guess, what you could call kind of a, a traditional gender role future for themselves. They just don't see it happening. And so they have to do other things. They have to get college degrees. They got to make, make other arrangements for stability in their own lives. I don't know, Brett, how do you see it? I don't know. It's true that fewer men are going to college and they're dropping out of the workforce more. But I also think if you talk to men, some men would say, well, I just can't find women who want to have a family. Or they'll say like, well, I just can't find any good women who are, you know, worth sort of shaping up for. So maybe, you know, men and women, you know, they want similar, similar things, but they're waiting for the other sex to move towards it first. Right? So it's like this catch 22 or a, a stalemate. Could a, could the crisis like shake that up? So right now, you know, you make the case that because of the affluence that we've experienced for the past, you know, the, since the post-war World War II period, 70 years, you're able to have men who just like opted out, not do anything. Could the crisis kind of be like, well, no, you, you can't do this anymore because this well, lifestyle. Does. Yeah, it does. And it also provides huge opportunity for guys to suddenly, you know, serve and, you know, get public respect, you know, actually serving the country because the country actually needs them. I think one thing that we find today with our definitions of citizenship is that we tend to think of it as it comes with all these um, rights that we have, but what are the real obligations, right? And of course, there's a time of crisis when people discover the obligations 
But these things are, are, are often energizing to young men. I mean, if there's any, if anything we've discovered during a crisis, it's when we're reshaping public institutions in a way that designing them for the future and designing it for the future automatically means more for young people, right? Because we're investing in their future. We're reshaping institutions for them. And young people get to get in on the ground floor of that. And inevitably, when you're talking about extraordinary efforts, you know, to redesign big public institutions, you're often talking about uh, mobilizing young men to do something. And that does become a slingshot for them, you know, over the rest of their lives. It certainly was for the GI generation, particularly the last wave GIs that were born in the 1910s and the early 1920s. And I do think that late wave millennials you know, people are today in their 20s, early 30s. It will serve the same purpose. Any other things you're seeing in our current fourth turning crisis and sort of the cultures changing and kind of lining up with what you would expect? Well, there's a recent, a recent survey, and it was, it was done by the Southern Poverty Legal Center, you, you may know, which often does surveys on various kinds of, you know, violent prone groups, certainly a progressive organization, if there ever was one, they did they did a large, very large survey, and they found, interestingly, that when it comes to the issue of what feminism has done to the country, and I, I pointed it out because it seems so counterintuitive to me, it pointed out that younger people, people under age 40, were significantly more likely, and this was true both among Democrats and Republicans, men and in women, were much more likely than older people to say feminism has done more harm than good. Now, that's interesting to me. Talk about a difference, again, an inversion from what you would have seen, you know, 40, 50 years ago, right? Uh, where obviously young people would have said feminism is really important and older people would have opposed it. And that's that sense of exhaustion. And so, Brett, if you're talking about what are we seeing today that is a precursor to this, to what I think will be more of a reality as we move into the rest of this fourth turning, I would point to those signs. Gotcha. So this is the first fourth turning where people are aware of the idea that a fourth turning exists. So can being aware of the fourth turning change the way the fourth turning plays out? I mean, could people theoretically start trying to pull levers to manipulate the crisis? Well, I don't know. It'd take a lot of hubris for me to be able to say that that would actually change things. I do think that at some very basic level, people are aware, right? You know, I'm hardly the only person who has drawn attention to the parallels today, we see today to the parallels of what we saw during the 1930s. I mean, many others have done that too. And certainly these simply arise naturally. When the North and the South finally you know, parted ways in 1861 and, and the war got underway, both the Southern Confederacy and then the Union both likened their struggle to America's, you know, they both called it America's second revolution, America's second declaration of independence. We were going through it again. They were aware of the parallel, that the battles that they were going to fight were exactly on par with the original fight to part with Britain and actually define the nation. And the same thing occurred again in the 1930s. People came back to that parallel. Why are we fighting the war? Was it a war to rid the world of, 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 of slavery? That's how FDR announced it in his uh, inaugural address. And after his uh, re-election in 1944, he, he said that we're engaged once again in a world to, to rid the world of slavery, just like we did in the Civil War. 
I guess what I'm saying is these things come back naturally. In these fourth turning events, the parallels, once you move toward the crisis, arise naturally. And as we move toward the climax of this crisis, the parallels to World War II and the Great Depression, to the Civil War, to the American Revolution, will arise naturally. And I guarantee you that political leaders and civic leaders of all kinds will instinctively reach toward them, you know, whether or not they knew about what I wrote about or not. All right. So these things are probably too big for any one person to be like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to control this thing. Yeah. I guess what I'm saying is that I I think that these obviously are very long-term movements, but I think more importantly that once we're in them, we understand the parallel. We might not understand them quite until we're actually in the midst of it. But once we're in the midst of it, we do understand the parallel. So could a crisis end in disaster? You know, so the, the previous things we've been talking about, you know, World War II, the Revolutionary War, it was terrible, but then things turned out great. You know, we had this high period afterwards. But you know, what happens when there's a crisis, there's no resolution and it just sort of ends in, it ends in disaster. Well, I mean, it could well be a resolution and the resolution could be terrible. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> you could lose a war. So well, yeah. So it's I like, mean, I guess for in, for in World War II. Well, the, let's, let's take the example of the Confederate South. I mean, there was a resolution. It was yeah. Appomattox and it was abject defeat. And it was poverty for their for the area of the country for the next many, many decades. Uh, in fact, even by the mid-1960s, I mean, the South was barely above, you know, two-thirds of the average income level of the rest of the United States. So so there you have what you'd have to say was a pretty disastrous outcome, you know, for, for a region anyway. And if you look at other countries, you can see that fourth turnings don't necessarily have good outcomes. And, and I, so it's not, you know, I like to say that a fourth turning with a good outcome what follows is a first turning, which many people will liken to another golden age. You know, everything works again. Everyone feels good. Well, they might not have a lot of individualism the way we define it today. So that's kind of a downer. And a lot of people today might not like that aspect of it. But certainly everyone who lives through the crisis is going to see a good outcome as the beginning of another golden age. When everything will work again, everyone can build big new institutions again. We can make huge new advances again in technology, world peace, uh, <laughs> discoveries, you know, not, not only in this world, but, but of course today, maybe in other worlds as well. And I talk about that a lot, right, in that chapter, sort of the good aspect of a fourth turning that ends well. But then that there's the possibility of ending badly. And I think it's worth pointing out that um, we, we tend to use devastating technologies of mass destruction, what's ever available. I mean, look, if you have a bad night, Brett, you you could imagine a lot of horrible scenarios, right, about how this thing would end. So I don't mean to say that this is necessarily automatically positive, and that's why it's important what we do. I, I don't believe in determinant history at all. It's important how people play their roles and how we find our way out of this thing. Okay, so when things turn out positively, you have this high period. But if it turns out negatively, like what does that what does that first turning look like? How does it? You like- still have a you still have some of the same archetypal reconstructions, and I think that's actually why the uh, the saculum is such a a 
a powerful complex system, it's always pushed back toward equilibrium, so to speak. I mean, imagine what the American high would have been if we weren't that prosperous and that successful. Imagine if we were just simply reconstructing from damage done during World War II, we would have had the same basic outline without the optimism, without the confidence perhaps, but it still would have been a period of strong institutions and solidarity and with a tremendous amount of investment in the future, maybe just, you know, getting back to where we were before. And typically, too, these societies have 20, 25 years later an awakening. The defeated nations in World War II had awakenings in the late 60s and 70s that were every bit as acrimonious and explosive, even more so than uh, the victorious nations. Okay, so there's still a high period, even when a fourth turning ends badly, right? So like, you know, using Germany as an example, you know, they lost the war during World War II, but then they still entered that first turning. It's just that their first turning looked different than the one in the U.S. You know, they still had rationing after the war. They had, you know, they still had some suffering to go through. So it wasn't as hopeful and prosperous as the first turning in the U.S., but they did rebuild and they did experience that first turning pattern. And I guess too, I mean, in some cases, you know, the the damage could be permanent, right? Like it's permanent destruction that happens during the fourth turning that, you know, a, a country is never able to recover from, even though the cycle continues. So as you said, you know, what we do matters during the fourth turning, right? The leadership we choose matters, the roles we play matter. So if people are feeling some unease during this fourth turning, what advice do you have for navigating this period, you know, like personally? One thing that becomes very important in fourth turnings is that as public institutions begin to have to allocate all their resources toward the national survival, that many of the benefits or many of the, the safety nets become less generous, right? So it becomes very important, I think, in these times to make sure that people solidify their network of friends and community, and above all, family. When the chips are down, particularly in a fourth turning, when no other kind of safety nets may be available, finding a way to be close to your family and knowing who you can count on and fortifying and reinforcing all of your kin networks and friendship networks is probably the most important thing you can do. And if you read accounts or just diaries of people in these crisis periods, you know, read, read the accounts of people having lived through the 30s and 40s, for example, or lived through the Civil War, and so much of it is close friends and family that helped them through and that were there for them when the chips were down and they cared for them. So, and that's part of the cultural shift, of course, that occurs when family perhaps not being as important during the unraveling, you know, during the 1990s or the 1920s, suddenly becomes a lot more important by the 1930s and 40s, and by extension, you know, by the late 2020s. Well, Neil, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? The book is, The Fourth Turing is here. It's available on, uh, you know, any bookstore, you know, Amazon, or I don't know, wherever you want to look. It's available in hardcover or Kindle or or audio. Fantastic. Well, Neil Howell, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Brett. My guest today was Neil Howe. He's the author of the book, The Fourth Turning Is Here. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Check out our show notes at aom.is slash fourth turning. We can find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. 
Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay. Remind you to not listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. While no one knows what tomorrow may bring, Bridgestone is working toward a more positive outlook. With innovations like developing a tire using 75% recycled and renewable materials. It's just one of the many ways Bridgestone is making a difference today, for generations to come. Because that's what really matters. Bridgestone, solutions for your journey. Visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.